It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible, or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. We welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday evening, June 9th, 2011. We appreciate you for listening to the program tonight, whether you're listening to us live or in the recorded version. If you are listening to us live, we look forward to your participation, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. And the chat room is filling up tonight, so if you are watching us and you have not saw, logged into the chat room, uh, do so so you can share your comments with other listeners. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Hello, Jacob. Great to be with you. might mention that that chat room is absolutely free. Get a little free login account. No, no personal information. No personal information required. Get, get, get in there and give yourself a name. Use your real name or use a, a pen name. We don't care, uh, and we'll be glad to get your participation in the chat room. We'll be looking forward to it. And we should probably return the hello from Australia. Sarah's listening from Australia tonight. Sarah, great to have you in the chat room and listening live to the virtual Bible study in Australia tonight. All right. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. And we can hear from you on a variety of subjects tonight because it's an open forum. It's open forum. It's listener questions. We're going to try to fulfill our promise. Our promise to you is that if you send us a request, we will try sooner or later to deal with it on the program. Sometimes a request or a suggestion we feel like merits a whole discussion. Other times we have just some brief questions and we kind of keep them adding up until we have several we try to deal with them in one of our open forum sessions. Jay, that's what we're going to do tonight. And you, uh, when I saw your email today, I thought you were being very ambitious. Nine questions you presented, uh, and we'll hopefully fill in a few extras from our listeners. That's a lot of questions. Yeah, if we get all nine of these tonight, we'll be doing good. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you can put up the chart real quick showing what the questions are. These are just sort of abbreviations. We'll try to give a little more detail of what the emailers ask us. Uh, I, I, I really don't know if it's it's uh, advisable to read them all first, Jacob. Uh, but we, we'll just try to deal with them one at a time. Okay, let's do that. Let's just let's just. Well, deal. we can hit some highlights here. We, we've got a question about Osama bin Laden. We've got a question about what constitutes marriage. Question about idolatry. Birthdays. Boy, a lot of things. Cremation. Boy, that this yeah. wide variety here. Yeah. Somebody wants to know about what the Bible teaches about cremation. So we're gonna we're gonna try to hit all of those things. Uh, I Lots think some of them questions. will be pretty brief, but uh, we'll, we'll try to cover them. Well, let's get rolling tonight then. All right. Let's start question. with number one. Ramona asked, and let me. And she did not give more uh, uh, explanation. She just simply said, "Should Christians rejoice or celebrate?" at bin Laden's death. Interesting. I had that question asked to me as well. I had it from more than one person yeah. asking, you know, what should be our reaction to that? Uh, of course, that's a several weeks old news now, but we still hear it commented on in the news media pretty regularly. Uh, Obviously, he well, was like public enemy number one. Our government had been hunting him for a number of years, and finally he was killed. You can answer in the chat room. Happy or sad uh, to that uh, question if you want to send in just a few uh, 
Uh, one word response there. Should Christians rejoice or celebrate at bin Laden's death? Uh, and so let, let us know in the chat room. Uh, well, we're, we're having trouble getting out. Uh, oh, they're both working, it says. Okay. All right. If, you, if you're not getting anything, we hope you'll try to reload your page. Maybe we'll get it working. Um, the, uh, the question is, should we rejoice bin Laden's death? Uh, we've got some email responses to that, and we want to hear more from you as to what you think. But, Eric uh, in Fayetteville says, I believe that we can take satisfaction from justice being done, but for Osama personally, we should feel sorrow that he died without knowing the Lord. I think that's the right answer. There's two parts. There's, two, There's two, two ways to look at it. Two ways to look at it. One, he died in a lost state, alienated from God. That's a sad thing to contemplate. But the other is that our government, I mean, it'd be wrong for us to seek vengeance on him, but but Romans it's chapter true. 13 it's says true. that civil governments are God's agents to, uh, to exercise his judgment on evildoers. In Romans chapter 13, uh, it says, uh, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, thou shalt have praise of the same, for he, the civil government, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to ex execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. So I believe that that's an important God-given duty of our government, of all governments, and that is the punishment of evildoers. I think clearly bin Laden was an evildoer. I mean, he never, he never denied or expressed any remorse for the hundreds and thousands of people that, that he was responsible for their deaths. And so it was a right thing that justice be done in punishing an evildoer. So I, in a sense, we can, we can rejoice in that, the, that God's plan worked, that governments punish evildoers. And I don't think they do enough of that. If there's any criticism of the government, it's typically that they don't do their God-given job. In this case, they did. And so that's, that's, a, that's a right thing. Now, as we talk about looking at it from two different angles, uh, Eric also goes on to reference Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So even God uh, does have uh, some remorse that Osama did not uh, repent and turn to him. Uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee says, Jesus taught, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, Matthew 5:44. Paul was inspired to write that we should pray for those in positions of authority, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, because God, quote, will have all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. And Peter was inspired to write, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Putting all these together, Jesus says we should pray for our enemies, and God desires all men to be saved, and desires not that any should perish. Thus, when an enemy does die and is not saved, God takes no pleasure in it, and neither should we. Uh, I agree. I agree with all of that. And and again, I don't think it's a it's a matter in which we're we're taking pleasure in the death of anyone. But on the other hand, I I would argue. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying Jim would disagree, but I would argue that it was the right thing that our government was doing a God-given duty in punishing an evil doer. And so that's uh, so. I'm, I'm, in other words, I'm not saying we should regret what the government did. I right. think the government did the right thing. Right. Okay. Uh, Paul in the chat room says, I have a hard time having a party over it, more of a solemn satisfa satisfaction. And Jeff is behind the controls tonight. And Jeff, uh, you sent in 
Matthew 5, verse 43. Explain that one. Not only love our neighbor, but also love our enemies. So you got you can't have any... So we can't hate him to be sorry. We have to watch how our feelings are. Exactly right. That's exactly. right. And But that would be the same thing, I think, Jeff. If you know, Let's say that a mass murderer is sentenced to be executed uh, when he's convicted of his crime. We're not rejoicing that he's being executed, but I would argue that it is an absolutely necessary thing and that our government is failing if it doesn't do that. And so we're not, we're not rejoicing over the fact that, he, that he's being put to death, but we are saying it's a necessary thing. It's justice as God mandates it should be exercised. We couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't seek personal vengeance. But God says governments are his agent to execute judgment upon evildoers. Roger is in Texas, I think, tonight, and he says, As a follower of Christ, I should not rejoice over a death. Yes, Osama bin Laden was a cruel man, but God still loved him and would have forgiven him if he repented. Regarding the news of Osama's death, two passages from the Lord, from, the, from God's holy word come to mind. Ezekiel 33, uh, verse uh, 11, as Eric referenced. In Proverbs 24, verse 17, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Interesting that he references Proverbs. Uh, Travis in the chat room references Proverbs 11, verse 10. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 10 says, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Um, so what about the, that reference in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20, or verse 10? Well, let me see that again. Proverbs, uh, it, it was sent in the chat room. Tonight. Oh, Proverbs 11, Proverbs. 10, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. I think that may be a reference to just human reaction to, uh, to the. But, but again, it is the idea of justice being done. Sure. Okay. We don't we don't rejoice in the death of, of sinners, but we rejoice in the matter of justice being done. All I right. think that's the right answer. It's a two-part answer. All right. I think I think we got to look at it. Sure. From, it's just from both of, directions. We should be happy that God that God's will is done. Yeah. We we, could, we, sure, we certainly shouldn't be upset that it happened because it's God's will that that happened. Yeah. We need to line up with God's will as far as rejoicing over his soul. And, but uh, God takes no rejoicing in when a sinner perishes. He's either. concerned about their soul as well. Yeah. All right, so, so yeah, depends on how we look at it. And Sarah from Australia says God is showing his power. The world belongs to him. I believe this is the beginning of the end for Israel. Well, I, I agree with the first part of Sarah's statement. I don't know about the beginning of the end for Islam. Well, we, seems hope, like we, should, it, we should hope that it is. seems like Islam's growing in power worldwide, which is a, uh, is a bad thing, but uh, we'll see. All right. All right, that's question one. Uh, uh, we'll have to leave it at that. Uh, let's see what time we got. Yeah, let's go to question two, Jacob. Number two. Uh, number two is – Let me give you a little more detail. All right. Uh, Steve writes from, South Carolina, or from North Carolina. Uh, he says, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the virtual Bible study on divorce, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That was a few we, weeks ago. Yeah. You missed it. He said, uh, he said, most of, he says, he thinks that Jesus' teaching on the topic is really quite easy to understand. For most people, that isn't the issue, it seems to me. The crux of the problem is that some people do not believe that Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage apply to the alien sinner. They think that. What Jesus taught applies only to the Christian once he comes into the kingdom of God. Hmm. You dealt with this issue under your third question last week. However, you made the comment to the effect that there are so many scriptures that teach that everyone is amenable to the law of Christ that we don't have time to go into all of them. I would like to have heard more. Would you mind addressing this issue again? Here's my question if you'd like to use it as a springboard for discussion. What scriptures teach that the alien sinner is amenable to the laws of Christ just as the Christian is? That's from Steve in 
North Carolina. Appreciate that uh, question, uh, Steve. Uh, Eric responds to that. Okay. He says, in answering the, the, the Jews' question on divorce, Jesus goes all the way back to the garden. His conclusion, what God has joined together, let not man separate, is universal and timeless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that some of the Corinthians had been guilty of adultery before being sanctified. Obviously, this uh, prohibition against adultery applied to them before they became Christians. I think that's an excellent point. I think that's the strongest passage to answer that question. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning verse 9, Know ye not that the righteous, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the, the Corinthians, prior to their conversion, prior to their sanctification, prior to being saved, they had been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. Yeah. So if, if the Lord's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that defines what adultery is, if it didn't pertain to them, how could they have possibly been adulterers before they became Christians? I think that's the strongest passage that teaches that, uh, that point, I believe. All right, Jim has sent in his answer, and he's in the chat room tonight, and by the way, he's making some derogatory comments about the picture that's on his uh, screen when uh, uh, he's watching our video uh, he says, what is sin? It is a transgression of the law. First John chapter 3, verse 4. If an alien sinner is not amenable to the laws of Christ, then how can they be a sinner? What have they tr transgressed? If, not, if one is not responsible to obey the laws of Christ, then they cannot sin and thus are not in need of repentance and forgiveness. The logic of the above argument assumes that one is only amenable to the laws of Christ after they obey. If such were the case, there would be, could be no sinners except those in the body of Christ. The word amenable is defined as open and responsive uh, to what is suggested by authority. If one is not responsible to obey Christ until they are after they are in the body, under his authority, how do they get in his body without first obeying him? So Jim says it's just can't you can't it won't work. All right, uh, Jack uh, from Hampshire is in the chat room, Hampshire, Tennessee, and he references 1 Corinthians 6:11. Such were some of you. Mentions as we were saying, these were lawbreakers. They they were lawbreakers before they became Christians. Which, and again, I think that's a, a really strong argument. Okay. A, and uh, Roger, uh, you say why do you say Texas? Roger's from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Murfreesboro. I got him yeah, mixed yeah, up. Yeah, with Murfreesboro, this, Tennessee. Another Texas. Sorry. Uh, Roger's right. from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and he says, as a whole, the alien sinner will be judged on the words that Jesus spoke. Some of the words, no, all will be judged. Uh, Jesus said in John 12, what Jesus said in John 12, 48 doesn't say only Christians will be judged by the words I speak. This is an overall statement being uh, uh, stating that Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth. Romans 3, 23 states that we have all sinned. If I have sinned, then what is sin? Sin is lawlessness as per first as per first John 3, verse 4. Thus, if all have sinned and sin is lawlessness, then all must be under law. Well, what law are we under then? It can't be some universal unrevealed law. Otherwise, how will we know what is right and what is wrong? Nature doesn't tell me that incest is wrong or that lying is wrong or that stealing to feed my family is wrong. God tells me that. It's his direct revelation that we can, by which we can know moral right and wrong. If there is no law, then there is no sin, as Paul stated in Romans 4.15 and 5.13. But as he previously argued, all have sinned, and thus are all are under law. All right. Good answer, Roger. Thank Good you. answer. Thank you for those comments. And for the question, we have many more to go. 
we got to get a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Travis's question, what is marriage? What makes a man and a woman husband and wife? That's a good question. Yeah, we'll get to that right after the break. And then we're going to talk about idolatry, pictures of Jesus. Is that idolatry? And uh, some other ones. Okay. I'm looking forward to this one about cremation. All right. All right. That's a burning question. We'll get to that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN. It's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. <laughs> and then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> and at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. Here are some quotes worth pondering. No one ever became impoverished by giving to and helping the poor. If you want children to keep their feet on the ground, put some responsibility on their shoulders. Your children will become what you are. So be what you want them to be. One cannot think crooked and walk straight. If you really want to be happy, always try to do what's right. The time is always right to do what is right. Man, I wish I'd said that. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back on the virtual Bible study, and we're glad that you are as well. And we look forward to hearing from you as we talk about various listener questions. And that means that we can squeeze one in from you if you have one that's not been mentioned. If you've got a question, let us know on the phone, over email, or in the chat room tonight. We look forward to hearing from you. This question that we're going to now, this is number three, if you're following along with the post or the update that we sent out earlier today. Uh, the third question is from Travis, and he asks, what is marriage? What makes a man and woman husband and wife? He gives a little more uh, definition of, of what he's talking about here. He says, may I give my belief? I don't believe that there is such a thing as premarital sex. Uh, he says this, uh, so I get to the point where I lose most people. I believe from the viewpoint of God's authority and law that the act of marriage is when people get married. That means if two people get drunk in a bar and go home and act married for one night, or a one-night stand, they are married, and this is when God considers them to be married. And, of course, man's law does not. Most people in the world look at marriage as a signing of papers and professing of vows. True, but what about Adam and Eve? There was no governing body to authorize marriage except God himself. 1 Corinthians 6.16 gives an indication that a person could become one flesh with a prostitute. This one flesh reference in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 is the first reference to a man and his wife. Uh, he says, trying to keep that short. Okay. okay. So basically the argument is when there are conjugal relations, then you are, you are in, in, instantly uh, you are married. 
Uh, and uh, Travis and I had a little bit of uh, of exchange on that earlier. Here's here's another argument uh, that uh, it, it is something to consider. He says, let's say that China takes over the United States, and they come in and say, okay, everything about everything about the rules you have in the United States are are gone. They're invalid, including the marriage licenses that you were granted when you became married. So does that what are you not are you not married now? Obviously, you would be married still. Uh, what what happens? I mean, how does that work? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can untangle that. But, but I mean, uh, let's just say that the marriage license that you have is now null and void. Well, they're going to pass. Are they going to institute some some new ordinance that we have to adhere to in order to constitute let's say marriage? There's no marriage at all. In other words, what if man passed a law that you can't get married? Right. I don't know. All right. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, right. I really don't. But I, I don't. I, I think that's a, a hypothetical that doesn't help us to answer the the real question of what makes a man and a woman a, man, a husband and a wife. Okay. I I would argue that in every culture, throughout the history of time, there has been something that denotes a man and woman as married versus just a male and a female having sexual relations. Otherwise, how can you have fornication? That's right. I mean, there there is such a thing as illicit sexual relationship, and then there's that sexual relationship that's ordained of God in the marriage itself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says marriage is honorable, uh, the, the bed undefiled. And so that, and in every culture, there's been some uh, acknowledged methodology by which you are not just a man and a woman having sexual relations. You are instead a man and a woman who are husband and wife. You know, I've heard it argued that in, in maybe in in a tribal Africa, uh, a, a boy and a girl who want to be married hold hands and jump over a broomstick. Well, if that's what it is, it is what it is, and you would you would need to do that because you want to be acknowledged as having complied with all that is necessary to be regarded as man and wife. And again, it varies. In time and place, but I believe in every time and place, that is a known thing. Now, there is an argument that is made from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, along these lines, where we read, What know ye not that he who is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now, that wording is very familiar to what Jesus said about marriage in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, that there you become one flesh when you're married. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 uh, tells us that when you're joined to a harlot, you become one flesh. How do you answer that? I think that the, the one flesh expression there in First Corinthians 6 is used accommodatively. In other words, you, you'd be doing what is reserved only for marriage. You, you, you're, there it is certainly talking about the physical fleshly sex act, whereas in Genesis chapter 2, where that expression used, is talking about all that constitutes people being married. All right, let's go uh, to the phone now and welcome our, he's our field correspondent from uh, Fayetteville, Tennessee. Eric is on the phone. Eric, uh, welcome to the virtual Bible study. Hey, guys. Great job tonight. Interesting question. Yeah, what about this question uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where uh, the the man who is joined to the harlot is uh, said to be one body with, with that uh, that woman? You know, I've wondered about that as well, and uh, and and when you mentioned it here, I I I, uh, I looked for some answers, and I found I want to give credit for credit to Wayne Jackson and the Christian Courier answered this very question, and here's the way that he approached it. He said basically go to the next chapter, and in First Corinthians seven, he warns them about keeping pure sexually, 
and he said that it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships or, or uh, you know, with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, verse 2, each one should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then he warns later to the, those who are single, it's good to remain single, but if you can't, verse 9, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he's warning them, the single people, that if they um, aren't able to control themselves, they need to get married, otherwise they would be sinning. And if, as soon as they gave in to that uh, temptation, then they were automatically married. There would never be any sin committed. Oh, I see what you're saying. In other words, if, uh, if, if, if when they engaged in the first act of, of the first sexual act, they'd be married, and so there wouldn't be any sin. But he said, you better marry so you won't sin. Right. It's like you said earlier. If or, you, or if, if you if, you should marry if, you should marry so you won't sin. But if if they were going to get be married after they sinned, then that's sort of a redundant instruction. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It almost does. It, it basically, like you mentioned earlier, it does away with completely the idea of fornication between a man and a woman. Anyway, it would be impossible to have uh, fornication you know, okay, between I, a man and a woman. I, I see your argument, uh, Eric, and I, I I think it's a good one. First Corinthians seven says that it's better to marry than to burn. We're talking about burning with passion and potentially committing fornication. It's better to get married than to burn with passion and commit fornication. But if if the argument is true that the, really the first time you have sex you're married anyway, then the whole the whole concept there in First Corinthians seven wouldn't make sense because if right. if you burned with passion and you had and you and you committed the sex act. Then you'd be married, and there'd be no sin involved in that anyway. Jim makes an interesting argument in the chat room. He says, God only authorizes one, one flesh arrangement, and that is in marriage. So when you get into a one flesh arrangement without God's approval, you are sinning. Is the one flesh arrangement there uh, referencing that uh, that sexual union, not necessarily a marriage union? Say that yeah. again. Is, is the one flesh representing a sexual union, not a marriage union? Well, I think it's clearly talking just about a sexual union in 1 Corinthians. I think they're used different ways. I think I think that expression is used differently in 1 Corinthians 6 than it is in Genesis chapter 2. I think in Genesis chapter 2, it's talking about the whole of the marriage relationship. I think in 1 Corinthians 6, it's being used in an accommodative way to simply denote the, the sex act. All right. Eric, your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's exactly what uh, Wayne, Wayne agrees, and he said that, that words can mean different things in different contexts, and he says uh, the term one, as employed in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, is in a very limited sense in the sex act of fornication. Two bodies are joined and so become one in sin, not one in marriage. And so that he, he's saying the same thing you're saying. Okay. You know, I was thinking, if, if, if this is true, if, if, if committing the sex act makes you married, then what, so here's a married man, but he, he has sexual relations with a woman who's not his wife. Is he married to that woman? Uh, say he has, a, a, say he's a real womanizer. Say he has three or four. He, he commits adultery three or four times. Right. Is he now married to four or five different women? Right. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking along this lines back in Second Samuel chapter twelve when, um, this, no, Second Samuel chapter eleven when David committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. But he wasn't married to Bathsheba yet because it says in Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah the Hittite heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband 
And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife okay. and bare him a son. Interesting. So she became his wife, not when they had sex the first time, okay, but when, but but later after her husband had died, and and then I, there was I, my way of thinking. There wasn't anything unlawful about David taking for a wife at that point. Okay. All right. Uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant says he that made uh, quotes uh, Matthew 19 verses 5 through 7. He that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Ma marriage is defined as one, a man and a woman, two, coming together to be joined in a relationship where they are no longer separate but united. Three, under God's authority and seeking to serve his purpose in that relationship, since God also says we are to obey the government, Romans chapter 13. This also means we have to be united in this relationship according to the laws of our land. In this country, that means we make our commitment before someone who is authorized to unite people in marriage, a minister or a justice of the peace. Interesting uh, points that Jim makes there. He goes into what, uh, what he believes constitutes a marriage. Uh, and uh, he references Jesus' instruction in Matthew 9. I think he's right. You know, when God instituted the marriage relationship, he said there, there's, there's intention involved. The leaving and the cleaving. Genesis 2:24. a man shall leave his father's wife, shall, cleave, uh, shall leave his mother and father, shall cleave to his wife, they shall be one flesh. And so there, there's intention involved there. It's not just having sex. It's intending to be married is, is necessary. And then I agree with Jim when he says we would have to comply with uh, civil ordinances and societal norms to identify ourselves as a married couple. All right. Uh, well, that brings us up to the bottom of the hour. And uh, Eric, uh, what are your thoughts? Anything to add in, in conclusion? No, I really like that point about you, uh, David and Bathsheba too. I think that 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 fits very well. But it was a good. It was an excellent question, uh, Eric. I mean, you've you've thought about some of these things as well in the past, and and uh, and I have as well. Uh, what constitutes a marriage, we need to make sure that we understand that uh, so that we can be in compliance with God's instructions regarding it. Right. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for your help on that question. All right. Thank you. Hey, and uh, send us your bill for your correspondence services down there. <laughs> we'll, right. we'll talk to you later. All right. We appreciate Eric for his help, and uh, we appreciate uh, that question from Travis. And uh, we will uh, take a break, get this week's bullet point, and we'll continue the discussion on the other side. Lots, we've gone three questions in 30 minutes. That means we'll get to six of the nine. We've got to hurry. We've got to go fast. All Don't right. go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. After seeing an exciting basketball game on TV, he decides he'd like to be a professional basketball player. A few days later, after hearing of a daring rescue from a burning building, he's convinced he wants to be a fireman. Not long after that, he learns about men going into outer space, and he's sure he really would love to become an astronaut. What in the world is wrong with this fella? Why can't he decide on a career course and stick with it? Why is he always changing his mind about important things? The answer is simple. He's a child. It is inherent in children to frequently change their minds. They may be firmly convinced of something one day and ready to do the opposite the next day. We understand that this is their nature. They will hopefully outgrow this tendency, and when they do, we will say that they have matured. There are some who are spiritual babes. All are in that category upon first obeying the gospel, but some never grow past that point. These folks are forever troubled by something new or different that is being taught. It may be something about our worship, or about the work of the church, or about a matter of morality like divorce and remarriage, or it could be any other thing. 
These people can never be settled in their thinking as to the important truths contained in God's Word. Let us put it as simply and directly as we can. Grow up. Ephesians 4 verse 14 urges us that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You need to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe it. If you hold a view, endorse a position, or would teach or recommend an alternate view, you should have strong reasons for doing so. You should be ready to logically and rationally defend the position you espouse. If you can't do that, you're manifesting the fact that you're a spiritual child, immature, and you are likely to be tossed to and fro by whatever new thing comes along. Grow up. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Arthur Haynes from Coleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The Virtual Bible Study rolls along. We are back, and we're rolling along, and we've got to do some serious rolling because we've got six more questions and 30 minutes to get there. All right. Our, if you're keeping track of our questions, we're going to number four from Tommy in Murfreesboro who says, I was inter interested in a study of using pictures or images of Jesus in Bible study. Would that be idolatry? Some brethren say it's okay to do so if you don't worship the image. Could you somehow deal with this on the program? All right. So, uh, the question is, what about using images of Jesus? You know, no. people, people have done that. They've done it forever. Throughout the history of time, artists have tried to draw some representation of what Jesus looked like, and they still do it today. You go in a lot of people's houses, they'll have, you know, a, a picture of Jesus on the wall or maybe even a statue of some kind or Usually another. Usually overexposed. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> but, but I'm saying it is a common practice, yeah. and the question is, but, but I think Tommy's also asking, what about using, you know, Bible class teachers are often, you know, uh, inclined to have some kind of, picture or representation of Jesus in, in the different stories that were involved in his life as they're trying to teach the little ones. Should we have pictures of Jesus is the question. All right. Uh, Jim answers this uniquely in Mount Pleasant tonight. He says, no, just as long as you have a real picture of Jesus or a portrait of him taken from when he was living in the first century. Otherwise, you have no idea what he actually looked like. And since none exist, that should take care of it. So he says, well, you couldn't really have a picture of Jesus. Well, again, obviously no one, as we've often said, no one knows what Jesus really looked like. In fact, if we have any idea at all what Jesus might have looked like is way different than what the artists usually draw. There was nothing about Jesus that would have drawn you to him to think that, oh, there's the Messiah. Yeah. Uh, and in these pictures that you would see, I mean, he would, he'd cast a glow everywhere he went. There'd be something that would call you to him to say, there's something unique about this person, but the scriptures tell us there was nothing unique about yeah, it yeah. in his appearance. Yeah. Um, Eric says, what makes something an idol is the way that we treat it. Moses made a bronze serpent by God's command, but later it became an idol when the people began to worship it. Talking about the, the brazen serpent in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, was where Hezekiah destroyed it because the people were worshiping it as an idol. Um I, I think of her. I, I got to tell you, I, I personally don't like to use pictures of Jesus and try at, at some uh, try to put forth some concerted effort to avoid using physical representations of Jesus. And the passage that I base my conscience on is Acts chapter 17, uh, where Paul was preaching to the idol worshipers at Athens. And he says, in him, that is in God, we live, move, and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Uh, so um, Paul was telling them it's, it's a futile effort to use art to try to represent God. And he was encouraging them not to do that. And, and based upon that, uh, it's just it, – and again, I understand there's some judgment involved, and I'm not going to enforce my, my conscience in that matter on others. But for, for my part, it seems to me like God never wanted to be represented by physical things. And so uh, it's easy enough to honor that. You know, one of the dangers of the pictures is you, you do get the idea that Jesus was – there was you know, there was this aura around him and – you, you, you think about people in the first century, and you say, how could they not believe in Jesus, being with him every day, seeing him? And, uh, you know, Hebrew, or Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing special about Jesus. But every appearance. picture, but every picture you, that an artist draws... Typically, he's a dominatingly handsome man, very well manicured, head and shoulders taller than all the rest of the people yeah. around him, and and he walks around like this. Yeah. And um, you know, it, 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 put yourself in the first century, and seeing Jesus in person, that that you would have to have faith on what he said, not on the way he looked. He would look. I mean, you envision Jesus could have looked like the guy across the street, the guy next door. There was nothing special about his appearance. And so they would they really would have had faith, had to have had faith to, to follow him based upon what he had taught. Yeah. yeah go, go to the chat room real quick before we move to another question. Uh, Jack uh, says, idolatry is a term for the worship of an idol or giving an idol undue honor. When we use pictures like drawings of Jesus to illustrate a story to children, it is not worship. We don't give those images undue honor. Uh, Jim agrees. He says, I'm not against people using illustrations to discuss Jesus. I think Jack is right. We're not worshiping those pictures when we use them to, uh, in discussing Jesus with children. Eric adds, uh, I never use any depictions of Jesus in my sermon presentations, but I wouldn't call it idolatry. And then Anthony asks, what about skits or plays? That's a, that's a whole nother uh, uh, question. What about people acting out, you know, uh, physical drama of some sort or another acting out roles in which Jesus is depicted. Um, again, personally, it, it just doesn't sit well with me. I, I, I think that we need to let let the Bible do its teaching the way it does its teaching. If God wanted us to know what Jesus looked like and wanted us to use representations of Jesus, obviously he would have made that available to us. It was certainly possible. We're, uh, we're certainly commenting in realms of judgment here, though. Yeah, I think there's a lot of judgment involved in that, and I'm going to leave that to people's judgment. Uh, I gave the basis for which I make my judgment is in Acts chapter 17. Uh, I do think it's a play, and I, I think everybody in the chat room is agreeing, it's, a, it's an area where we want to be somewhat careful. Cautious and use, uh, yeah, use good yeah. judgment. But again, I, I, would, I, I think I would come up short on calling it idolatry. Okay, time's up. Time's up, all right. All right, number five. Uh, number yeah. five comes from Mike in Chattanooga. Uh, he references a website that uh, – Jacob, I gave you a, a printout from that website, drunkwithblood.com, drunkwithblood.com. Well, it's it's some uh, unbelievers who are saying that the God of the Bible is just uh, – uh, if there is a God, and if he's the one who's describing the Bible, he is a bloody God, and he's not, he's not loving and not, not benevolent and so forth. Now, Mike asks, is God justified in taking the actions – and he, there's a whole bunch of them referenced yeah. in the Old Testament where God 
instructed people to kill other people, for instance. Uh, or even kill themselves. Do you know, for example, that uh, God burned Aaron's sons to death for offering him strange fire, burned complainers to death, forced the survivors to eat quail until they literally came out of their noses, sent fiery serpents to bite people for complaining about the lack of food and water, and killed 14,700 for complaining about his killings. Uh, buried alive those that opposed Moses along with their family, burned 250 men to death for burning incense, uh, rewarded Phineas for throwing a spear through the bellies of an intertribal couple while they were having sex, ordered, assisted in, or approved of dozens of complete genocide. And, and there's just on and on and on. I mean, it, it lists a bunch of these kind of episodes from the Old Testament. Now, Mike's question, is God justified in taking those actions? Is it a reasonable and righteous God that extracts such punishment? Or are these signs that God is fickle, vain, and cruel? That's the question. Well, it's interesting that uh, we would stand in judgment of the one who gave us the concept of morality and claim that we have a better understanding of it than he does. That's the first thing that strikes me with that. Uh, that well, and I think Jim's answer is along those lines. He quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel or instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Uh, Jim goes on to say, I think Isaiah is simply saying that no one can teach God what he needs to know about how to do things. That's and right. when we seek to do that, we find ourselves at odds with him. He is the one who knows the truth and teaches us, not the other way around. Appreciate those comments. Amen, uh, Jim. If we've got a problem with what God's doing, you just change your attitude and your outlook on it. Uh, Eric says, God often punishes an entire nation when it is sinful as a whole. Often individuals who are innocent, children, and even righteous like Jeremiah, suffer as well as those in these complete punishments. But does that not mean that they will be punished? But that does not mean that they will be punished eternally. We must respect God's sovereignty even when we do not understand it. As Nebuchadnezzar learned, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to his hand, uh, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Uh, that's Daniel 4, verse 35. All right. In a lot of those episodes in the Old Testament, real quickly, uh, we'd have to argue that God was using people as his agents to punish evildoers. Yep. For instance, when he sent the Israelites into the land of Canaan to occupy it, that was a promise that he'd made that they would occupy that land. But he was also using the Israelites as his punishing agents against the pagan people of the land for all their gross immoral, immoral deeds that they had done. Mm -hmm. And so it was justice. It was mm -hmm. God's justice against evil. Now, a lot of times it bothers people that innocent women and children were killed in those battles. But I think that, that Eric has hit upon the point here. If there were innocent people killed, then eternally it works out for their good. That's right. Because they if, they, if, that. if they had grown to maturity, then they would have gotten involved in those sinful deeds, and they would have been eternally lost. We're looking at it from our physical perspective without yeah. God's spiritual perspective. And Eric, I left one sentence off that's very important here in Eric's response. He says, our difficulty in understanding is probably because we do not fully grasp the seriousness of sin. Exactly right. And God's righteousness. I think that's right. I think okay. that's right. That's, I think right. that's, that's the answer you've got to give to that. It's, it is a troubling thing, and we acknowledge that it is troubling, but I think that's the right answer. All right. Answer. Uh, quickly before the break, what about a birthday? Jonathan uh, says, I'm a bit curious about birthdays and how we should celebrate them or if we shouldn't celebrate them. I'm a bit unsure how to address this as I'm not well versed in the Bible yet, and I'm unsure about the authority for birthday parties. 
It seems over here in England, Jonathan writes to us from England. Appreciate that, Jonathan. He says, uh, when you hit your 18th and 21st birthdays, to most people, it's mandatory to have a huge party where people get drunk and have a great time. There is no authority for that. Yeah. We so, can answer that question. We can answer absolutely there's no authority for sinful things associated with birthday celebration. Okay. But now what about – There are religious groups who have problem with any kind of – The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, teach against observing anyone's birthday. Okay. So what about uh, uh, observing birthdays? Eric in Fayetteville uh, says Job's children apparently celebrated birthdays in Job chapter 1, verse 4. Job 1, verse 4. That verse, uh, you know, they gathered, his children gathered, and it's and most commentators believe they were gathering to celebrate one another's birthdays. Okay. He says he believes Romans 14, verse 5 allows us to have special days, obviously, as long as we do not do anything sinful. Okay. Uh, and uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, says one man esteemeth one day above another. He's Same quoting passage, that from yep. 14. Mm -hmm. Another man esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In matters of liberty, let each one choose what they will do. If one desires to celebrate it, let them. If one desires not to celebrate it, they are fine also. So Jim suggested it's a, a, matter a of personal, personal judgment. But it's certainly everything that we do in celebration of that must be in compliance with God's instructions, and therefore... Uh, it is not licensed to have the drunken parties. So certainly anything involved in, in, in those parties that would be sinful is wrong and cannot be endorsed. But I don't know of any Bible teaching that would forbid a joyous celebration of an event, including a birthday event. I, just don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where you would go to find a condemnation of that. Uh, we are at liberty, as Jim said. I think we're at liberty to act as we please in that matter. All right. Well, we did better than I thought. We got three of the six done in 15 minutes. That means right. we've got three, three more to go. 15 minutes to go. We'll get your comments on the other side. Send them in, phone them in, or chat them in tonight to the virtual Bible study. It goes to the top of the hour right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of Ecology Church of Christ with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? A virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13, and this is the virtual Bible study. That was me five years ago. Now I'm 18, and I still love listening to the Virtual Bible Study. See, I told you we'd be back. The Virtual Bible Study continues. And we are back on the program tonight. We're glad that you are as well. If you have any comments about anything you hear on a Virtual Bible Study program, we encourage you to comment, comment and contact us anytime. Send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. And we're listening and answering listeners' questions tonight, and that tells you that if you have a question about anything, uh, as you study the Bible and you'd like to have it discussed in this format, uh, send in your comments or your questions, and we can include them in a future program along these lines. Three more questions to go. The next question is about cremation. All right. Uh, we just have a question. What does the Bible teach about cremation? And uh, um, let's see here. Jim in Mount Pleasant said, the Bible nowhere speaks of cremation. We do find that God's people are buried, and there's no account of them being burned. And God destroys that which is evil by fire. Thus, one thought is that only that which is evil is that which is destroyed by fire. That's Jim's input on that. Say uh, that again now. Jim, Jim says the, in the Bible, evil things are destroyed by fire. So maybe that's a, a thought toward cremation. Maybe He's not. Suggested. Maybe against cremation. Maybe against cremation okay. is his point. Eric says, I don't know that if this is relevant, but it's interesting that Abraham says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 27, that we are but dust and ashes. And Revelation 20, verse 13 says, 
that wherever we are buried, we'll be called from there in judgment. I'm not aware of any instructions in Scripture on what the Lord requires in burial. Therefore, it would be up to us to use our judgment. Okay. Uh, Roger uh, has a, a longer, but I thought I think a well-thought-out answer on this. Okay. He says, the Bible does not give any exact rules on how one should be buried. Nothing is said about burial before the flood. People were often buried in caves. Abraham had a number of his and a number of his descendants in Genesis 25:9, or in chambers cut out of the face of a rock cliff. Lazarus and Jesus in the tomb of a rich man. History tells us that many Christians were thrown to hungry lions and eaten or burned alive from torches by the Roman emperor Nero. Uh, well, guess 343 in the chat room suggests that Saul was well. All right. Uh, history. T well, Saul, King Saul was. We're going to get okay, to that. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, he's uh, talking about King Saul. Yeah, King Saul. Here, here's, uh, in fact, Roger deals with that. First Samuel 31 describes how Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle and the Philistines mutilated their bodies. Here's the quote. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Here we have Jonathan, a godly man who was cremated, sort of. And although God is the only judge, it's pretty safe to say that he will be in God's heavenly kingdom. The apostle Paul made a statement that implies that to offer one's body to be burned isn't sinful, but actually highly self-sacrificed. I think that had reference to persecution, such as when Christians were burned at the burned stake at and so forth. Okay. Uh, uh, that's 1 Corinthians 13.3. He says, therefore, the Bible has to be regarded as silent on the issue of how a dead body is to be properly cared for and respectfully disposed of after death. Ultimately, it is not how someone's body is dealt with after death, but rather what kind of life they lived while the body was alive. God is powerful enough to physically resurrect anyone's body regardless of how it was destroyed. He references Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. I think that's the point. I think some people are afraid that if, if a body is cremated, then there won't be a body to be resurrected. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, a body's going to disintegrate one way or the other. Right. You know, so 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 this guy's body is burned and it's it's it is you know decomposes you know in a matter of a few minutes in a, in a hot fire, versus a person who's buried in the ground and his body decomposes over a matter of several months or years. But either way, those bodies are gone. Yeah. They they they've completely gone back to the elements from which they were made. That's not in either case. It's not going to be, prevent God from calling them forth in the resurrection. All right. If I am responsible for things that happen to me after I am dead, then uh, yeah, that certainly doesn't make any sense. Um, you, we, uh, we've got no say in it. I think we just have. I think the right answer is what uh, uh, Roger said. The Bible has to be regarded as silent on the issue of how a dead body should be properly uh, cared for and respectfully right, disposed of. Number eight could be a whole program. All right. Number eight. This is from Eric in Minnesota. Different Eric. I was just wondering if you guys would do a virtual Bible study on tips for churches without elders. I've been preaching and teaching for two churches without elders, and I'm curious about input with regards to operating under those circumstances. Well, for my first observation is that a church can scripturally exist without elders. It's God's plan, ultimately, that churches will have elders. That's that's the ideal, but it's it's... Biblical, biblically provable that churches can't exist without them. Uh, in Romans, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 14, Paul went back among some of the churches where he had previously worked. Uh, it says uh, they 
returned to Lystra. This is Acts 14, verse 21. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. These are churches. Yeah, and when they then had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commanded them, they committed them to the Lord on whom they had believed. So they had planted those churches sometime earlier. Now they were coming back through those places and helping them get established with elders. So those churches existed at least for some time without elders. So that's the first observation. But the next observation that has to follow closely behind that is that it is God's desire that churches have elders. Right. And the church is not complete until they do have elders. You know, I think there are many churches where there is no desire to, to appoint elders because if you do that, then you've got to submit to them. And there are a lot of people who don't want to submit to elders. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe you're right. Your analysis is correct. Eric says, I would suggest that they try to appoint elders as soon as possible. That is, as soon as men are qualified. It seems that churches without elders sometimes grow accustomed to not having elders and aren't in a hurry or even resist the choosing of some. That's just along the lines of what you were saying, Jacob. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, and I, I've heard of comments, not necessarily someone who didn't want to submit to elders, but uh, the, 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 the idea of appointing elders was brought up, and the person raised their hand and said, why do we need have to have elders? We're doing just fine the way we are. And that's a failure to understand that's God's wrong, plan. Absolutely wrong attitude. All right. Uh, Jim says, uh, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. But this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He represents Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Yeah, I think he has idea the idea here that when you have a church without elders, you need to make sure that you are working to promote unity and peace. Yeah, Jack in the chat room says your first course of action is pray that all men will truly love God and that they will love each other. Uh, and I don't know, I, I think probably a lot of our listeners would be able to relate similar experiences to mine. In times past when I was a member of churches without elders, sometimes it got pretty strifeful, a lot of, a lot of tension. And over lot, silly things. Over things that weren't all that terribly important. And had no looked. doctrinal significance. Yeah. And so God's plan is best, and, and the, the plan to have elders over churches is the one we all ought to be striving for. But I think in answer to Eric's question, what would be some tips? I think every single person has got to be admonished to be on their on their toes to be conducting themselves the way a Christian brother should. And then obviously they've got to they've got to come together with consensus and agreement about what they should be doing based upon the authority found in the Word of God. All right, quickly we have one more question, and we're going to get this done tonight. If we'll get all nine in if we do this one. Number nine. All right, number nine uh, comes from Eric, and he said a friend of mine recently made the following statement: "Quote: If I had opposed it happening in the bu- in a, in the building or with the resources of the church I worship with." I don't do the same in other churches' buildings or with their resources. Daycare scouts, money management programs, or other self-help kind of programs, martial arts instruction, whatever. I think it's just the most consistent and defensible position, in other words, to not do those things in their building since we wouldn't want to do them in our building. He says, what are your thoughts? Here's some common scenarios that come to mind. A cousin's wedding at a denominational church building, voting at the polling place at at a local church building, uh, or meeting some friends for a pickup basketball game at a church-owned gym. Do all these things stand or fall together? If we wouldn't approve of them in our building, is it inconsistent to do them in someone else's building? 
Um, I think it's an, an interesting question. Uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant says, hard to know what the question is dealing with when it says certain activities. Who are the we? Uh, does this mean authorized as in we follow the scriptures or opinion as we don't think it should be done? So Jim, Jim didn't have enough information uh, to, to answer that. Uh, Eric himself says we definitely need to consider how our actions will be viewed by others. But I do think there are times when a building is just a building. For example, if a local denomination open its, opens its facilities to be used as a polling place. I think this would be another one uh, where we're going to have to allow people to exercise some judgment in I that. Agree. But I am, I am sympathetic with the view that we really hurt ourselves consistency-wise. I mean, I understand a building is just a building. But if I'm trying to teach someone uh, you know, that it is not the work of the church to uh, sponsor uh, and promote recreational activities for its members, such as having a gymnasium. All right, so so I'm, I'm trying to teach my neighbor that this is not the right work of the church. This is not authorized in the scripture. But then my neighbor sees me going over here to the Baptist church where they have a big family life center and a gymnasium, and I go over there regularly to play basketball. I think I'm hurting my influence with my neighbor. It's going to be much harder for me to make my point to him about what is the authorized work of the church when he sees me doing that. I think i got to take that into consideration. I agree with you. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And so it, it's a fine line to walk. And uh, we've got to make sure that we consider those things. What is, what is my influence saying? What am, I, am I condoning this by being a part of it? Certainly things to think about. As you said, I think it's an area of judgment, but we've got to give it some consideration. Yeah, and, and again, we got to understand what are our most important priorities. Our most important priorities is that we want to, we don't want anything that we do to to be a detriment to us being able to persuade other people with the truth of God's Word. So we don't want any of our actions to be as such. Now, that's that's not to say that sometimes it's unavoidable. I mean, Someone may see something that I do and misinterpret it and come to some conclusion that's absolutely not true to what I believe or practice. I, you just can't head that off completely. But as much as is possible, I don't want I, I don't want anything that I do to be the kind of thing that would cause someone else to stumble or maybe not understand uh, what God would have them be doing. All right. Uh, we don't have much time, but Jack asked, what about going to the Baptist hospital or Catholic hospital? We're taking advantage of their donations. I know it's not a worship building, but is there a definite connection? I think that's different, Jack. Uh, the Baptist hospital and the Catholic hospital operate at a for-profit status. Okay. And so if I go to Baptist hospital or a Catholic hospital and pay for a service, I'm, I'm, I'm not making a donation. I'm not contributing. I'm actually paying for services rendered. I think there's a, a, a great difference between paying for services rendered and making a donation uh, to something that I don't agree with. And so I, 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 make, I make that distinction in that regard. Back to the issue, though, about the use of, the, of buildings uh, and uh, maybe participating or not participating in activity. Maybe it's just a good opportunity for you to have an opportunity to teach someone yeah. about Sharon, your conviction. Sharon uh, in South Carolina in the chat room says the, that there was a discussion in a class while back, and, and they determined that it was a paid-for service. Paying for a service is different than uh, a free will offering or a contribution to something that we wouldn't agree with. All right. Well, we are out of time, but I am just amazed.
We got through nine questions. We got questions. through nine questions. So probably a record. We've come close. There's a, I've got a few questions left in the pile, but we've, we've done a good job in really whittling down that pile of questions, so we're open to some more. If you've got questions for us, we, we send them in. We may determine to do a whole virtual Bible study on your, on your uh, concept. Or we may do it in one of these open forums, but send us in your questions. All right. Well, we have had a good discussion. We've had a good audience tonight, a worldwide, uh, international audience. And appreciate Sarah for sticking with us there in, in Australia tonight. And uh, we appreciate all of our listeners. Dad, we've had a good discussion. Yeah. Uh, and, again, we do appreciate those questions coming in. Next week, what are we talking about? Not sure yet, but we do want to tell everybody in the Middle Tennessee area yes, about our special community Bible studies at the Murray County Park here in Columbia. June 20th and 21st, that's uh, a week from next Monday and Tuesday, we're going to have sort of an old-fashioned tent meeting in the park. Uh, Don Wright from Louisville, Kentucky is going to be here, and he and I are going to present a couple lessons each night. It's going to be about premillennialism, the rapture, the millennial kingdom, the end of the world. All those things obviously have been in the news recently. So we're, we're advertising this in the community, trying to get people to come out uh, so we can study together. If you are listening and and are in driving distance of Columbia, we hope that you'll make a point to come on Monday, Monday, January 20th, Tuesday, January 21st. What time? 7 p.m. at the Murray County Park in Columbia. What if I need more information? You can call us. Or send an email. Or send an email. All right. Jeff has been behind the controls. Jeff has done a good job. Thank you, Jeff, for your time, and uh, thank you for listening. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We hope you make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.